how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Philippians Part 1. Well, now we come to Paul's letter to the Philippians, another letter written from his imprisonment period in Rome, the first time he was imprisoned, or rather under house arrest. Now, just let's look at the map and get Philippi located. It's right up here. It was the first uh, city in which Paul founded a church. He called it a colony of heaven. That's very significant for Philippi. But there it is, right on the main east-west Ignatian way of the Roman Empire, right on the main route, and he'd, he landed at the port of Neapolis from Troas, but he didn't stop there because his strategy was not to go to every town, but to go to the key town in the area. And we shall see in a moment why Philippi was such a key town. Well, let me tell you now, there is a range of mountains that runs right across the north of Greece, right here. And there's really only one main gap in that whole mountain range from east to west, and it's at Philippi. And so the, the main road runs just south of this range of mountains, but at Philippi there's a road runs through them to the rest of Europe. And so that really was the key city to get hold of. And that's why it was such a key city right through history. We're going to find that many great battles were fought at Philippi for that gap in the mountains between the northern part of Europe and Greece. Well now, let's start by looking at the uh, city itself, or what remains of it, because it's in ruins now. There is a modern city, but it's well away from the ancient city. Here it is with those mountains in the distance. Now, it's only a few years ago that an archaeologist found a tomb here which was full of the most amazing golden treasures. It was second only in its content to Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt. But you've all heard of Tutankhamun, I'm sure, but you haven't heard probably of this grave because it was overshadowed by the Egyptian discovery. But it was the second only, and it was filled with golden treasures. It was a king's tomb, and it was the tomb of Philip, after whom the city Philippi is named. Now, Philip was the king of Macedonia, the northern part of Greece, but he had a son for whom he had very great ambition, and his son was called Alexander. And his son was Alexander the Great, who conquered the then-known world by the age of 31 and then died. So this is Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, and it was Philip's tomb that they discovered. And in those hills there are gold and silver. It's a very rich mining area, and that's where they got all the gold for his tomb. Well, 2,000 years ago, it was a large and prosperous city in this beautiful area, as you can see, and Philip built his capital there. The battles that were decisive in history right here in this gap in the mountains were, for example, in 168 BC, the Romans came and conquered the people. Then in 42 BC, this was where Antony beat Brutus and Cassius. And later, in 31 BC, just before Christ came, 
Here, Antony and Cleopatra were defeated and came to their end. So it all happened here. It was a battleground. And this became a Roman colony. The Roman Emperor Augustus gave it a very highfalutin name. He called it Colonia Julia Augusta Philippensis. So he managed to get his own name in there, Augustus, and he managed to get Philip's name. But people call it Philippi for short. It was a mini metropolis. And it was given exactly the same rights as Italian soil, so that Romans were encouraged to come and settle here and colonize here and have a thoroughly colonized bit of Rome here and were given all the same rights and privileges as they would have had if they'd stayed home. Now, someone rather higher than the Roman emperor had his eye on this city, and that was God himself. God wanted that city as a colony of heaven. It was strategic. It was the gateway to Europe. And so God brought one of his servants, Paul, to start a colony here, but it was to be a colony of heaven. This Roman colony was to be colonized for Christ. Now, you remember he brought... Uh, Paul here from Galatia. Paul was steadily working west, but not nearly fast enough for God. And for once, God was in more of a hurry than Paul was. That is why the Holy Spirit forbade Paul to go into Bithynia and into Asia and kept driving him west until he had the dream come over into Macedonia and help us. And so actually, Paul was not moving fast enough for God, so God hurried him up and wouldn't let him evangelize the rest of uh, this area and hurried him on to Philippi. And that's why Paul calls the church in Philippi a colony of heaven. And he emphasizes this colony aspect because it was such a strong Roman colony. And so the gospel came to Europe. But it started in a very small, insignificant way. There wasn't a single man whom Paul could start with. There wasn't a synagogue there, actually. It was much too Roman. What there was was a ladies' prayer group. Now, you probably know that uh, in Judaism, you've got to have ten men before you can have a synagogue, which is why they called Jesus rabbi, because he had twelve men. And even though he had one poor one, he had eleven. So he was called rabbi because he had a synagogue. Synagogue isn't a building. It's a coming together of ten men with a rabbi. And uh, so they didn't have ten men, but until you could get ten men, you could have a prayer group or a house group. And so they had a ladies' prayer group down by the riverside. And the lady who led it was actually from Asia, not from Philippi, from Asia. And uh, she was a lady of business, seller of purple, and she had slaves. She had a household. By the way, the word household in the Bible doesn't mean family. It, it included slaves and all kinds of relatives. It's much bigger than our word family. So uh, this was the first household baptism when everybody in the house believed and everybody was baptized together. It was Lydia's household. The first man, as far as we know, to become a Christian in Europe was a jailer. And he would be a slave, uh, a slave who was given the job of looking after the jail. It was not considered a very nice job. Well, so Paul preached, as he always did. He started with Jews and God-fearers around them, and he found this little group of ladies by the river. That's where he started, and that's how it all came to Europe. 
Well, opposition very quickly started, and it came in a very unusual way. As Paul preached in the streets, a girl kept following them and kept saying, you must listen to the, these men. They're from the high God. You really must listen. They're, they're telling you the truth. Now that, you'd have thought, was a bit of good publicity, but it wasn't. And Paul saw through it, and it troubled him greatly. And after a few days, he realized that the demons were in this girl. She was a clairvoyant, and she was being used for money by her owners, by the men who owned her. And she would tell fortunes. Now, it's very interesting, you see, demons can tell the truth. But it's not helpful to the gospel when the wrong people publicize it. And Paul cast the demon out of that girl, and she stopped troubling their meetings. But, of course, her owners now had no means of business. And that was the beginning of trouble. Wherever Paul went, he stirred up trouble, either with the Jewish people or with others who were losing business, like the silversmiths of Ephesus and now this, this girl's owners. So I'm afraid it wasn't long before he found himself in jail. And it's interesting that the accusation this time was that he was Jewish and was advocating laws against the law of Rome, which he wasn't at all. But that's... Uh, Virtually now it was anti-Semitic, whereas normally it was the Jews telling tales of Paul. Now it's Gentiles saying he's Jewish and he's against Roman law. Again, it's totally false, but it finished up with them in jail. So what do they do in jail? Sing their hearts out and sing hymns. And it's so typical of Paul. So here they are in jail in total darkness at midnight, and they're praising God and having a good old sing-song session, Paul and Timothy. Sorry, Paul and Silas. And then came the earthquake, the walls collapsed, and the whole prison was just thrown open, and all the prisoners could have escaped. Now, had they done so, then the jailer would have been crucified. And that's why he was so terrified when that happened. That's why he yelled out, I don't think he would have known what he was saying. What must I do to be saved, he said. You know, saved from what? Saved from crucifixion? We don't know what really he meant when he said it. But Paul was pretty quick with his answer. He said, you need Jesus. And then the story is very condensed in the book of Acts, but uh, Paul preached to him for hours through the night and to his household too. That meant all his slaves as well. We don't even know if the jailer and Lydia were married or not, but we know that they had a household. And, of course, they would in that position. And so Paul spent the night preaching to all his slaves. And then when they were ready, he baptized them all in water. And uh, the church now was growing. But uh, then Paul used his Roman privileges, and you could in Philippi. They were very, very hot on their Roman privileges. And Paul said, I was thrown into prison without a trial, and that's against Roman law. And they begged him to leave town. And he said, well, if you come and get me out of jail and accompany me out of town, I'll go. <laughs> and this little procession came, and the leaders of the town came and escorted him out. So he was only there for a very, very short period, a matter of days or weeks at the very most. And yet he left behind the first colony of heaven in Europe. My, what a missionary he was. So, the Philippians responded better than anybody anywhere. 
they really had fewer problems in their church than any other church that Paul founded. Not only that, they were so grateful to Paul for bringing them the gospel that they decided, they were the only church that did this, they decided to support Paul financially. Paul never asked for anything, but they were the only church that wanted to say, we want to help you to go and share this gospel with someone else, and they supported him from then on. And in fact, it is a gift from Philippi to Paul in Rome that occasioned this letter to the Philippians. Years later, Paul was arrested in uh, Jerusalem, appealed to Caesar, went to Rome in chains, and for two years he waited trial. And it was during those two years that Dr. Luke wrote the two volumes that would be his defense at his trial and would eventually get him off. But before the trial came up, Paul received two things from Philippi. One was a gift of money because, of course, he was getting none. He was under house arrest. Literally, he says in the letter, I'm in bonds, but the word for bonds is a linking chain, which means a short chain about a metre long, the other end of which is a soldier who is changed every eight hours. Now, fancy being chained for eight hours to someone who speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians. <laughs> I mean, they didn't stand a chance, and one after another of those soldiers was converted. And the Caesar's household now had the gospel, but that's another part of the story. So he says, I'm in bonds, I'm in linking chains. But he was in a rented house, and he was fairly free in that sense, so visitors could come and go. And one day a man came from Philippi, came all the way from Philippi with a bag of money to help him to eat during the time he was waiting for trial. But the man didn't just bring money, he brought himself. And his name was Epaphroditus. And he said, they've sent me from Philippi to cook your meals and to look after you in your house, to be your housekeeper. Isn't that beautiful? The people of Philippi, where well, as soon as they heard Paul was under house arrest awaiting trial, how can we help him? Well, he won't get any money now, so we'll send him some money. And he's alone in that house. and. I'm sure he's not a very good cook, so we'll send him someone to look after him and be his housekeeper. Now, it's very interesting that Epaphroditus sent all that way from Philippi to Rome to be Paul's housekeeper is called an apostle. An apostle. Now, I've mentioned that because the word apostle, a very flexible word, it literally means a sent one from a Greek verb, apostolo, I send. And an apostle is someone who's sent from A to B to do something. And there are five kinds of apostle in the New Testament. Jesus is called an apostle because God sent him from heaven to earth to save us. So he is the chief apostle, and that's his title. He said, the Father sent me. And it's interesting that Jesus himself did not begin his work until he was joined by someone else sent to be with him. Apostleship is always in twos through the New Testament until we get to Epaphroditus. And Jesus didn't begin until the Holy Spirit was sent to him, and then he began. And whenever Jesus sent anybody out after that, he always sent them out two by two. Isn't that interesting? 
Beware of an apostle on his own. <laughs> Look for two of them. The second kind of apostle are the twelve who were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and sent out to the world to be witnesses to the resurrection. And their qualification was that they saw Jesus before and after his resurrection. They had known him before he died and they knew him after he rose. Therefore, they could swear in a court of law that it was the same person and therefore they could be witnesses of his resurrection. Paul could not be because he wasn't, um, he hadn't known Jesus before he died, but he was called by the risen ascended Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he was a third kind of apostle. It's obvious there are no twelve apostles now because nobody can be a witness to the resurrection now in that legal sense. And Paul was unique, the last of all as of one born out of due time. There can be no apostle like Paul now because Paul could be an apostle to write scripture. There's no apostle today can add to the Bible. So those three categories are finished. The fourth category is Paul wearing his other hat, a pioneer missionary sent out to plant churches where there are none. And there are many called apostles in the New Testament like that, and there are many today like that, and uh, sent out by the church to establish new colonies of heaven where there are none. And they always went in twos, at least, often a larger team of men and women, but always there were two men in an apostolic team. There's still apostolic teams today doing the same thing. Interesting that the word uh, sent in Latin is mitomitere, from which we get our words missionary and missile. You see, a missionary is an intercontinental ballistic missile <laughs> filled with the dunamis of the gospel, the dynamite of the gospel. But that's what the word missile means, sent. You see? And it's the same as the word apostle. Now, that fourth category of church planting, of colonizing, that's still around. They don't write scripture, but they do plant churches. Paul, in a sense, wore both hats. He was, he was both an apostle of revelation writing scripture and an apostle of church planting. And with him were many others like Barnabas and Silas, who are also called apostles, and many unnamed people. The church at Corinth had its own apostles, but we don't know the names of any of them. People they sent out to plant new churches. That's how it spread. And then we have the fifth kind, Epaphroditus, and that means anyone who's sent from anywhere to anywhere to do anything. So it's a very broad category. And uh, so Paul writes to thank them for the money and for your apostle Epaphroditus, whom you sent to look after me. Actually, years ago we had uh, a wonderful caretaker in Guildford at the Millmead Centre, and uh, Don Martin and his wife, we actually, he was a brilliant carpenter. He could put a thing like this together with neither nails nor glue and you couldn't pull it apart. He was a brilliant carpenter. And so we sent him all the way to Nazareth. We thought if you're a carpenter we ought to send you to Nazareth and he went to Nazareth to help build the hospital in Nazareth, a new wing of the hospital. And he went out there for six months, never flown, never been out of the country. It was the biggest thing in his life to be our apostle, our sent one from here to Nazareth to use his skill as a carpenter. I'm mentioning this because the word apostle is not this sort of up-in-the-air word, this special word. It's anyone sent from anywhere to do anything. And that last fifth category can cover someone sent to be a housekeeper in Rome by the church in Philippi. And that just takes a bit of the edge off, you know, this sort of very special uh, apostle. 
said with bated breath. It's anybody sent from anywhere to anywhere to do anything. So this is basically a letter of thanks, of thanks for the two things from Philippi, the money so that he could buy food and someone to cook it for him and look after it. The tragedy, of course, was that no sooner had Epaphras got there than he fell desperately ill and uh, was so ill that uh, Paul was quite sure he was going to die. Now, it's very interesting that the healings in the New Testament are usually associated with evangelism and not with healing Christians and keeping them fit. You know, and a number of Paul's associates and he himself had physical problems that uh, were not healed. Timothy was told to take a bit of wine for his stomach's sake. Of course, Paul meant him to rub it in. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and and he, he left Trophimus somewhere sick. And the healing ministry of the New Testament was not to keep Christians fit, but to demonstrate the gospel in evangelism. I just mention that because I'm afraid we've gotten to a kind of thinking that all we're supposed to do is heal each other and keep Christians fit. But no, we're to demonstrate the healing power of God as a demonstration of the kingdom when we preach to the outsider. Frankly, it's much easier to heal unbelievers than believers. I don't know if you've found that out, but it is. And so that's the place. So Paul did not heal Epaphroditus, and he was sick unto death. And the word went back to Philippi that the man they'd sent was desperately ill and about to die. And so Paul decided that the best thing to do was to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi when he began to recover. And he thought that would reassure his relatives back home. And so the letter says, I'm sending him back to you with the, this letter of the thanks for the money. I'm sorry to lose him. He's been a very dear friend to me and he's really helped me, but uh, I'm sure you're anxious about him and therefore I'm sending him home. But thank you for sending him. So it's basically a thank you letter, which is the only thank you letter we've got of Paul's. Whether he wrote any more, we don't know. Whether he got any help from anyone else, we don't know. But there was this peculiar bond between him and the Philippians, and they wanted to help him so much. Well, so to the letter. Quite different from most others, it doesn't concentrate on problems or crises or needs. It concentrates on the relationships between Paul and the Philippians, and therefore gives us a little window into those relationships. There are no strong negative emotions, no sadness, no anger here. There's much positive emotion, warm, tender, intimate, friendly. And here we really get to know Paul as a person, as a friend, rather than as a preacher or a missionary. And you get a glimpse of what a profound relationship there was between him and his converts. There are some specific matters, his prayers for their progress, but that's the way you open a letter anyway, by giving good wishes, and he never did that. He just said, I pray for you, and his prayers for their progress are there, and his gratitude for their generosity. One intriguing feature of this letter is that he didn't seem to know how to finish it, and he kept saying, and finally, and finally, and finally, and finally, like some preachers, you know, have you ever heard a preacher say my last point, and you know it's at least 25 minutes before you'll get wound up. Well, there are a lot of finalists in this, but it's typical letter writing. He keeps remembering something else. Haven't you written a letter to a friend? And then you keep saying, oh, I must mention that, and oh, there's just one other thing. And it's spontaneous. 
and he keeps trying to say finally and then he remembers something more that he wants to tell them. But in all this, one word figures quite prominently and that's the word koinonia, which is translated in our Bible fellowship. But that's a word we really haven't understood. Fellowship or koinonia is a very profound relationship. We talk about, we'll have a bit of fellowship over a cup of tea in the hall after the meeting. <laughs> As if a cup of tea creates fellowship, it creates a bit of friendship, but fellowship is far more than a cup of tea. Koinonia was a word that was used of partners in a business. We would say partnership. So that if that business fails, everybody involved in it goes down. They have fellowship in the business. They are bound up with each other so that if one goes, they all go. If one survives, they all survive. That's, that's fellowship. Or to give you an even more startling illustration, in those days, as today, they occasionally had Siamese twins born. Of course, there was no hope of separating them in those days. Even modern surgery doesn't always succeed, but when Siamese twins are born, if they're joined side by side, they have the same bloodstream. And uh, that's one of the difficulties of separating them if the blood is circulating through both their bodies. And when Siamese twins were born in the ancient world, they were said to have koinonia in blood, which means that if one died, the other would die, you see. They're so bound up together that what happens to one will happen to the other. That's koinonia. It's not just having a nice friendly cup of tea together in the church hall after the service. It's being so bound up together that what happens to one happens to the lot. And if one rejoices, all rejoice. And if one is humbled, all are humbled. That's koinonia. What happens to one happens to everybody else. And Paul keeps talking about our koinonia, our fellowship. What happens to you happens to me. What happens to me happens to you. What affects me affects you. That is a very, very strong word. Paul had been their parent, but he now calls himself their partner. Well now, there were some problems, both general and particular. They were having problems with two women. One was called odious and the other called soon touchy. I'm not sure that I'm pr pronouncing the names right, but uh, anyway, there were two ladies who were problems and they had been good workers with Paul and he benefited from them, but now odious and soon touchy were, were really causing problems and he has a little word for them. But the biggest problem they were having, and Epaphras, sorry, Epaphroditus must have told him about this, the biggest problem was there was a certain amount of disunity there. It wasn't the kind of disunity at Corinth where they were following different ministers or leaders. It was the kind of disunity that comes in when pride gets in, when people just get a bit too big for their boots or when people become more concerned about themselves than about each other. That was the root of it. And when members get more concerned about themselves than each other, then tension comes, tension comes. I remember an elderly lady coming to me once in our church and, and she said, oh, she said, I get frustrated, Pastor. I said, what by? She said, these young people coming into the church, they, they, they come in and they, they seem to get filled up with the Spirit and speaking in tongues in no time at all and I've been asking for that gift for years and I never got it. I said, but you did get it. She said, when? I said, when they got it. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, when they got it, you got it because we're all one body here 
And if one member rejoices, we all rejoice. And what comes to one has come to us all. And so if they got the gift, then you got it. We all got it. Because it came to them. Oh, she said, I didn't uh, see it like that. I said, well, go home and thank the Lord that you received that gift. So she did. She did go home. She got on her knees and she said, thank you, Lord, that we did get that gift. Only she wasn't speaking English. (laughs) And what had kept her back was thinking they got it and I didn't. But you see, if someone in your body gets it, you got it. That's koinonia. It's when you start thinking of yourself as separate individuals rather than one body, members one of another, that disunity can creep in because you start making comparisons. Are you with me in this? I'm touching a profound thing here. When the body gets anything, it doesn't matter who gets it, we all got it. And we can all rejoice in what somebody else received because that added something to us and to our body. It added an extra gift to the body when somebody else was blessed. See, now that kind of thinking keeps unity, but the kind of thinking he got it and I didn't That's going to begin to break it up a bit. And this is what was happening in Philippi. And Paul had to say, when each of you cares more for the other's interests than yourself, you'll get back to your unity. In other words, what he's saying, you care for me more than you're caring for each other. And that can be easier for you to care for a missionary in Timbuktu than from the person in the next pew in the church. Do you see what I mean? The caring, the koinonia needs to be shared with everybody in the body, not just with a few. Well, there is one word in this letter which brings me to this picture on the left here. And I'll bet you've been wondering who that is. That is a picture of Paul, but not the Paul we're talking about. A man called Paul Schneider, one of my heroes. I want to tell you about him because uh, he really is a remarkable man. Why have I put him up? Well, let's just go back to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Here he is in jail, losing Epaphroditus, the man who's looked after him, facing a lonely future, facing a trial which could lead to possible death. And the most favorite word in the letter is joy and rejoice and thanksgiving. I'm just so happy and so grateful. Now, isn't that remarkable? I asked somebody once how they were, and he said, I'm very well over the circumstances. Only a Christian could talk like that. And so his letter from jail is just full of joy and thanksgiving. Now, that's why I put Paul Schneider's picture up. In the 1930s, Paul Schneider was a pastor of a church in Berlin. I've been to that very church. His widow is still a member there. It's on the south side near Dahlem, on the south side of Berlin. And Paul Schneider in the 1930s from his pulpit preached against the evil of fascism and Hitler. And his congregation begged him to keep quiet about this. They said, we'll lose you. And they begged him not to. Even the mayor of the town came and begged him not to talk like this. But he went on doing it. And one day at three in the morning, which is when the Gestapo always came to arrest you, they came and they took him away. Waved goodbye to his wife. He never saw her again, or his two-year-old boy, or the unborn child in her womb. And he went away smiling. 
smiling. They took him to Dachau concentration camp. I've got an account here of what they did to him. It's almost too horrible to read. But they whipped him and finally they hung him up by his wrists and left him there to starve to death. Then they put him in a coffin and his wife and family came to pick him up. And they said he was the best prisoner we ever had and he died of pneumonia. That wasn't the truth at all. That was Paul Schneider. And I have at home his letters which he wrote from Dachau concentration camp to his wife. As I read them, the two words that come again and again, I'm so happy and I'm so grateful to the Lord. See, that's another Paul, right up to date. The same spirit of joy and thanksgiving. And I can come up even more to date. I'm sure you noticed in the Times the case of Mehdi Dibaj in Iran just two weeks ago, sentenced to execution for changing from Islam to the Christian faith. He was in prison for nine years without trial. The whole case was made very public in the West. Bernard Levin wrote a magnificent article about him in the Times. Um, here we have his statement, which some of us heard uh, two weeks ago. A statement, finally he was brought to trial on the 3rd of December 1993 and made a magnificent statement to his judges. He was on trial for his life and he began, with all humility, I express my gratitude to the judge of all heaven and earth for this precious opportunity. He then went on to speak of his faith in Christ. He says, I have been charged with apostasy in Islamic law. An apostate is one who does not believe in God or the prophets or the resurrection of the dead. We Christians believe in all three. They say you were a Muslim and you've become a Christian. No, for many years I had no religion. People say you are a Muslim from birth. God says you were a Christian from the beginning. They tell me, return, but from the arms of the living God, to whom can I return? The God of Daniel, who protected his friends in the fiery furnace, has protected me for nine years in prison, and all the bad happenings have turned out for our good and gain, so that I am much filled to overflowing with joy and thankfulness. There it is again. You see, this is Christians in prison facing death. Joy, thankfulness, incredible, isn't it? And that's the letter to the Philippians translated into modern dress. It's the same Spirit of God who's doing it. Why could he face all this as he did with joy and thanksgiving? First, because he lived for Christ, and therefore he had nothing to lose. Dear Mehdi Debaj, he says, Life for me is an opportunity to serve Christ and death is a better opportunity to be with him. Therefore, I'm not only to be satisfied to be in prison for the honour of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord, and enter his kingdom sooner. His last words to his judges, May the shadow of God's kindness and his hand of blessing and healing be upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. If you live for Christ... To die is profit, it's gain. He 
He's eager to go but willing to stay. And you know, he says to the Philippians, you're worried about me. Actually, it's the other way around. I'm a bit worried about you. I'm not worried about me at all. He says, I'm willing to be let off and restored to my ministry, but I'm eager to go. You know, when dear David Watson found he was had such serious cancer, I wrote a letter to him. He quotes it in his little book, Fear No Evil. And I said, David, there's a difference between being willing to go to be with the Lord, but eager to stay, and eager to be with the Lord, but willing to stay. And somehow that just spoke to him, and he prayed his way through until he was eager to go, but willing to stay. That's the biblical position. And uh, Paul had it, and he said, I'm willing to stay around if I'm needed a bit longer, but I'm eager to go. Well, you can't beat a man like that, can you? And when you live for Christ, to die is gain. Thirty-eight times in this little letter he talks about Jesus. Thirty-eight times. Christ, Christ, Christ. And you remember what I said earlier about being in Christ rather than Christ being in us. Listen to the score on this. He never once in this letter talks about Christ in me, but 48 times he says, I am in Christ Jesus. 34 times, I am in Christ, and 50 times, I am in the Lord. When you add that up, 132 times in this letter, he used the phrase, in him. That's where he was. That's his address. That's where he lived. Well, now, I'll just have time. We haven't finished with Philippians yet. We're going on in the next study, but I just have time to mention the money matter. Towards the end of his letter, he thanks them for the money, and he said, really, I didn't need it, but you needed to give. That's a very interesting thing. Mind you, he wasn't rich. He didn't have a lot of money. But he said, I'm thrilled with the gift, not for my sake, but for your sake, because that makes you rich. It's an unusual way to thank somebody for a gift, isn't it? He's congratulating them on giving it. But he said, it's all right. And then he said this amazing thing. I often test when I'm giving preachers classes, I test them on this matter of quoting texts out of context, which preachers are always doing, especially now they've got computerized concordances, which are a deadly instrument. Uh, we've just got a lot of topical preaching now, picking texts out of all over the place, out of context. And I quote this text, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I say, now what does that text mean? What things do you think you can do through Christ who strengthens you? And I get all sorts of answers. Heal, witness, pray, all the rest of it. Not anybody mentions money. But in context, that statement is about money. And what a message it has for today's church. He is saying, I can manage with whatever income I have, whether it be large or small. If I've got a lot of money coming in, I can manage through Christ who strengthens me. If I've got only a little coming in, I can manage through Christ who strengthens me. Because the one thing that Paul would never do would get into financial debt. He called it a sin. Because to be in debt is to be withholding money from someone to whom it belongs, and that's stealing. So Paul says very clearly, debt is a sin. And recently in a church we asked the congregation, how many of you are in debt? And two-thirds of them put their hands up. For Paul, debt was a sin because it's stealing. 
and whether he had a lot of money coming in or a little, he would never get into debt. Let me just add, having a mortgage is not being in debt. Getting behind with payments is. And therefore Paul says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now there are two opposites in Scripture. Coveting is one extreme and contentment is the other. And Paul says elsewhere, Godliness with contentment is great profit. And he says, I've learned to be content. Now that's remarkable because when Paul gave us his testimony in Romans chapter 7, he said the one of the Ten Commandments that he found he couldn't keep was the tenth. Thou shalt not covet. Because Paul was a typical Pharisee and the Pharisees' weakness was they liked making money. They were religious and rich at the same time. Jesus told them, you can't be both. You can't live for making money and live for God. You can't worship God and mammon together. And the Pharisees laughed at him. They said, that's just because you're poor. But Jesus knew what he was talking about. And this covetous man, Paul, as a Pharisee, a man who liked money and liked making money, he said, I have learned to be content. Now, which do you think is easier, to be content with a lot of money or content with a little. Think about it. I find it's often those with most money who are least content. But often the poor are not content either. They want more. And this man in prison says, I'm glad you gave the money because that makes you rich. But I've learned I can manage because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we spiritualize that text, don't we? But Paul financialized it. And it was a very down-to-earth statement. And he says, thanks for thinking of me, but I've learned whether a lot comes in or a little, I'm content. Here's a man who's at peace with himself, a man who's content, a man who can just give himself to saying, thank you, Lord, I'm grateful for everything. We'll pause there and we'll continue to look at Philippians in the next study. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.